Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So today, we get to continue our Come Holy Spirit series, and we get to talk about miracles. So when you think of miracles, what, what, are the, what feelings come to mind? What thoughts come to mind? Is it anticipation? Uh, youth, sorry, I always forget this. Youth, you can head off to your classes, take off, go. We've got some great classes for you. If you're here for the first time in your youth, just head out that way. Some great, great classes for you. Do you feel anticipation when you think about miracles? Or do you feel hopefulness? Or maybe some of you think of and feel disappointment or even disillusionment. I think all of us, when we think about it, have those feelings. And what really is a miracle today? Is it getting a great parking spot at the Ohio State football game? Is that a miracle? I mean, maybe. Or maybe you're thinking, I know God has done miracles. I read about him in the Bible. But do I really believe God still can? You think, I think, I think, I think, I think he can. Do I really believe that he will? Today we want to look at what we believe about miracles. Do we really believe God can still do the things he did in the Bible? And this ties into our Come Holy Spirit series that we've been in for a while where we've been focused on how the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus, the early church, and us through to do signs and wonders, leading Jesus to say to his early disciples, it's actually better for me to leave that the Spirit would come upon you for these kinds of things happening. Now let's just start really basic today. Let's define miracle. The most common definition of miracle throughout history from Augustine to Aquinas has been a divine action that transcends the ordinary course of nature and so generates awe in God. Miracles are a special way of getting people's attention and communicating something to them about God. Why does God do miracles? I think there's many reasons. Maybe a couple of our miracles help God reveal himself to us. God wants our relationship with him to grow stronger. And he wants us to show wants to show us what he's like. That he is a giver, that he cares deeply for us, that he is real, that he is actively involved in our lives, that he is good. And miracles also help us see what the kingdom of God is like. Miracles build our faith. They encourage us to risk more for God. And miracles reach people who don't have a relationship with God. We're going to see a lot more of that in some of our examples in just a moment. Jesus does miracles and then sends us, his followers, to do the same. One one scripture text says it this way. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Another scripture says this, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Another scripture says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go to heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Is doing miracles just for those disciples or... Is this still for us today? 
See, in this context, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming to them after he leaves, and he tells them, we've read this before, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Again, this whoever is not referring to just the disciples, but referring to anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. If it's not that broad, then Jesus would actually be saying the promise of the Holy Spirit is only for the 12. But that's not what Jesus says. He says the Holy Spirit is for everyone who follows him. Although Peter, Paul's letters focus more on the church's specific issues, Paul shares how miracles are accompanying his ministry wherever he started new churches. He says this, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the church at Corinth, Paul talks about, as we talked about last week, gifts of miracles and faith and, and, and healing and prophecy and other miracles that these would continue among the churches. Specifically saying to the church in Galatia, he says, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Do you get miracles because you merit them by how good you are? Or do they happen because you believe what you heard. Not only Paul, but James expects healing to continue as an answer to prayer in the church. He says it this way, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. Now, there are some who believe today that Jesus did miracles to prove he was God, and the apostles also did miracles to confirm Jesus was God. But once the biblical era ended, the apostles died, Jesus' divinity was proven, so God doesn't do miracles anymore. kind of have to ask the question, is it really true that in our culture today, Jesus' divinity is proven? not so sure that's really true. Or, if he does miracles, they are extremely rare. However, throughout church history, we continue to see all of the gifts of the Spirit working, including miracles, signs, and wonders. Supernatural events have always been a part of following God. Even back in the Old Testament, God says, I am the Lord who heals you. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha do miracles and healings. In the New Testament, we have one-fifth of the book of Acts filled with miracles. One-third of of the Gospel of Mark talks about miracles. And we just talked about how Paul said miracles were a key part of him leading people to Jesus in the churches he established all over. But miracles did not stop at the first century. In the writings of the second and third century, critics of Christianity... They acknowledge healings occurred through Christians. Now, they said some of those were miracles were done by evil magic, but they did not deny that Christians prayed and miracles happened. Second century church leaders who helped stabilize the early church in the midst of huge persecution were people like Arrhenius, a a bishop of what is now France, and the North African theologian Tertullian. Both identify that many miracles happened, leading many to become Christians. 
In the third century, Origen, a leader from the Egyptian church, testified that he saw healings and exorcisms. The famous fourth century theologian Augustine believed at first that miracles had stopped until a friend of his had a miracle. His friend had already had one surgery for a major problem that would cause death in his life, and, he didn't receive, and it didn't solve the problem. Now, at the time, remember, there's no anesthesia, and people often bled, bled to death during surgeries. So while his friend is wailing in pain while they're doing surgery once again, Augustine and the others began, began praying. And the next morning, the doctors removed the bandage and found that his friend was completely healed. It led Augustine to start documenting miracles. In the next two years, he collected firsthand witness accounts of 70 significant healings, including the blind seeing, those who couldn't walk, now walking, and even the dead raised. Ramsey McMullen, a a Yale professor and a distinguished expert in Roman history who, when he wrote this at least, I don't know where he's at now, but didn't, didn't believe, he reluctantly concluded from his research that the leading cause of conversion to Christianity in the 300s were healing and deliverance. In 1656, Blaise Pascal, one of the most brilliant mathematicians to ever live, a committed Christian, saw his niece divinely healed of severe eye disease. It became such a thing and it was so shocking that the queen had her own physician investigate and he verified that she indeed received a miraculous healing. Miracles are associated in history with the earliest missionaries who evangelized England and Scotland and Ireland and Germany and Persia and almost everywhere mission ground was broken. You see miracles happening. When you study church history, there has never been a time where the presence of the kingdom of God expressed through the miraculous has not been evident somewhere in the earth. There is no particular denomination or movement that miracles are limited to. You see them in the Catholics. You see it among the Protestants. Within the Protestants, you see miracles among the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, Christian Missionary Alliance, Pentecostals, Anglican Church, Baptists, and almost every movement. What we see is God does miracles. Not because his followers have the same specific theology, but because God acts in order to show that he loves us and to give us a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. When you honestly study the Bible and all of church history, miracles really seem like they are an integral part of following God. So do people still believe in miracles today? Interestingly enough, a 2006 Pew Forum surveyed Pentecostals and Charismatics in 10 countries on four different continents, and it revealed that over 200 million Pentecostal and Protestant Charismatics claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. From that same survey, 39% of Christians who do not claim to be Pentecostal or Charismatic also said they had witnessed a divine healing. Now, this survey is just 10 countries, not including China, where the reports out of China with a rapidly growing church are that there are tons of miracles and healings happening all the time. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who will personally claim to having witnessed a miracle 
a healing. Now, of course, not all of these reports are genuine miracles. But we certainly can't discredit them all. There are a lot of people who believe they have experienced a healing, seen it, and know it. In America, in America, about 38%, nearly 100 million Americans, express belief that they have had some sort of divine miracle. In another survey, it suggests that 75% of doctors in the U.S. believe in miracles, with over 50% of the physicians noting that they feel like they have witnessed a miracle of healing. Studies have shown that up to 70% of the rapid evangelical growth in the world in the past few decades, which if you're not familiar, in the U.S. it's not happening, but all over the world, Christianity is exploding in growth. The past few decades... The most of that has been due to signs, divine miracles that get people's attention for Christ. China is really difficult, admittedly, to get a lot of information on, but the reports indicate from there that half of all Christian conversions over the last 20 years were due to faith healing experiences. That means of the 20, 30 million people that have come to faith, half of them experienced and came to faith because of a divine healing. Millions of people have been converted to Christ because of healings. Our daughter Elise had the privilege to go to Nepal a few years ago on a mission trip. In 1950, there were no known Christians in Nepal. Now there are more than half a million in a country of less than 30 million people. And 80% of the Christian conversions in Nepal are due to healings or deliverances from spirits. In northeast India has seen mass conversion among the Nishi tribal people. One reason was due to a government official's son who died. No religious sacrifice or medicine had helped the boy. But a pharmacist who was present when he died kind of suggested that he pray to Jesus, the Christian God, because, you know, he'd heard that this Christian God had once raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this unbelieving official laid his hands on his his son's head, and he promised to worship the Christian God if he would heal his son, and his son's eyes opened, leading to mass conversions among that tribal group in that region. Miracles are incredible. So why is it that we tend to resist the miraculous so often? Well, I think first, let's just just be honest. It's because of our difficult experiences, isn't it? We prayed for someone, and we didn't see him healed. Recently, my dad celebrated 55 years since he was miraculously healed in an evangelistic tent meeting from a severe permanent heart damage from six heart attacks at age 32. The best heart docs, we lived in Minnesota, the best heart docs of Mayo Clinic said he would surely die from heart disease before the age of 50 and probably wouldn't make it till 40 because the heart damage was so bad. But God healed him and he'll turn 89 in a few months. But then this last week, A really dear friend of ours, a few years younger than us, passed away from breast cancer. Lisa and her husband, Chris, were two of our closest friends from our 11 years on the West Coast. 
Chris was part of my training teams that traveled all over doing training up and down the West Coast with me. He took over leadership of church planting when I left to come here. He currently leads the entire region. And Wendy and Lisa were diagnosed a few years ago almost the same day with breast cancer and almost the same week had surgeries a few years years ago, and yet the outcome is very, very different. These experiences are real for all of us. And they bring a multitude of feelings and thoughts, don't they? Healings, miracles, even the discussion of them can trigger some really painful places and usually come with layers of questions. When it doesn't happen, why does it happen for some and not for others? And we begin to wonder, is God just arbitrary and capricious? Have I done something wrong? Is he just mean? Have I alienated him enough that he can't do anything through me? One way to think about those questions of why he does and doesn't is to understand Jesus and Paul's teaching that we now refer to in theological circles as the theology of the now and the not yet. Jesus and Paul clearly teach the kingdom of God is near. It is both here now, we experience drips of heaven breaking into our reality But it's also not yet. We pray and people aren't healed. Things are not resolved. And Jesus clearly tells us that things will not be fully made right until he returns again. We can fight that reality. Or we can see it as something a loving father would do to warn us about the reality we're going to have to face going forward. To prepare us to remain hope-filled even in the not yet and to prepare us to know that the promise is there, that he will do it, but we can still pursue the kingdom breaking in now even when it doesn't. Believing in the now and not yet, though, does not mean that we live passive in believing God for miracles. We are to grow in our faith and grow in a deeper understanding of who God is. And one of the things God is, is he is a healer. Because healing at its core is confrontation with darkness and sin. It's it's confronting all that is broken in this world. When Jesus heals, he's showing that he has victory over sin and sickness and death and his kingdom is both here and it also guarantees us that the promise that one day everything will indeed be made right is something we can trust and be sure in. And that's what God is inviting us to today. To be willing to put our faith into action and to deal with the hard questions that will arise when we do that. So I want to spend the rest of our time today looking at miracles that happen today in our, in, our, in our lifetimes that have been well documented. Many of these are highlighted in Craig Keener's book. He wrote two volumes, 1,200 pages of miracles that he investigated and got proof, like medical proof, that they actually happened, not including the 1,200 pages doesn't include the appendix and the endnotes. Uh, Keener is one of the leading, probably top two or three New Testament scholars in our world today. And even though he thought it would be academic suicide for him to write a book about miracles, he felt he needed to risk his career to show the credibility of miracles in the Bible and how they still happen today. 
To his surprise, his book has been highly regarded, widely accepted, winning several rewards. A few months ago, he actually released a condensed version. So if you don't want to read 1,200 pages, I think it's around 200 pages that you can actually get and read a whole bunch of them. And he added some more stories, more current ones even to that. So I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stories from that and a few others as well, if you don't mind. So after a drunk driver crashed into a car, Delia Knox was confined to a wheelchair for 22 years because of nerve damage. She had been a widely known gospel singer. She prayed for healing for about 10 years. And then, frankly, she lost hope after praying for healing for 10 years and not getting it. In fact, she got to the point where she dreaded going to a healing service because some of the ministers would come and pray for her and try to drag her out of her wheelchair expecting her to walk, and it was just humiliating. At one service, as she was being prayed for, though, she suddenly started to feel something in her legs. She had not had feeling in her legs for 22 years. Her husband and others helping to support her took, to, helped her support her to take her first steps. And her legs were atrophied. You see it on the screen right now, the first steps she was taking. But there's video of showing her three weeks later after she'd been working really hard on her muscles where she was much more stable and watching much, walking much easier. Now, some skeptics said about this that Knox had never really been paralyzed. She had just wanted to stay in a wheelchair for 22 years so that she could say that God healed her. Any of you want to do that for 22 years just to prove a point? Come on. Greg Spencer's vision kept declining. He was diagnosed with macular degeneration. It's a condition that's irreversible. Test revealed that there was permanent modeling in the center of his vision, and his, rap- his vision rapidly declined to 2,200, 2,400. And, and so the combination of the modeling and the rapid decline in the vision, he was declared legally blind and placed on disability. He went through the full training for blindness support from the Oregon Commission for the Blind. He never thought he'd see again. Spencer later became a Christian. And while praying about his past and trauma he experienced, God restored his vision. He tried to get off disability, but they wouldn't let him. Because they said, you've got to prove that you don't have macular degeneration anymore, and you're not going to be able to prove that because that doesn't go away. So he went and got examined by multiple doctors who proved his vision was now 20-30. And finally he got off disability. And 18 years later, when they interviewed him, he was still doing great. In 2006, Bruce Vanata was crushed beneath the semi-truck. He's the only person doctors can find who lived having the injuries he had. Most of his small intestine was destroyed in the accident. After multiple surgeries, there was only 116 centimeters left of his small intestine. Normally, it's 350 centimeters. Because of that, he dropped from 180 to 120 pounds because his body couldn't absorb enough nutrition. He was starving to death. A friend was led, by, led to fly from New York to Wisconsin to pray for him, and he, he commanded the small intestine to grow in Jesus' name, and he says, I felt like a lightning hit my stomach, and he went to the radiologist, and they confirmed that his, testin, his small intestine was now fully functional, and it had more than doubled in length from 116 centimeters to 274 to 300 centimeters, some in that, somewhere in that range. Now, a small intestine can widen, but it cannot naturally grow longer. It would be like an amputated leg growing longer. He's still doing well, live in Wisconsin, helps with orphanages in Honduras and India, and does prison ministry today. 
In May 1972, a little gal named Lisa Larios was 12 years old, could no longer walk. The picture you're seeing on our screen is two or three years later, so you know there's a good result. You know, Tests test showed that she was dying from cancer. Reticulum cell sarcoma of the right pelvic bone. By the time the doctors discovered the hip socket tumor, it had already invaded the soft tissues of the interior pelvis. And several doctors confirmed the diagnosis. Because the cancer had spread so far, the doctors said, well, we can't even do an amputation to save your daughter's life. There's nothing we can do. We give her six months to live. Her parents chose not to tell her that she had cancer right away. They wanted to take her on several trips to help her really enjoy the last months of her life, but a friend of her mom had told her about a healing meeting. She had grown up, they'd grown up diehard Catholics, but had not ever really considered a miracle possible. But they decided to go to this service, and the minister in the service pointed the section they were sitting in and said, someone there is being healed of cancer. Understand, Lisa didn't know she had cancer. They hadn't told her. She didn't know it. But she experienced, experienced this warm sensation in her stomach, <clears throat> and she felt an overwhelming urge to stand up which was painful for her, very painful for her. And she began walking up and down the aisle with no pain because she could. The mom was stunned because the doctors had told her not to let Lisa put any pressure on her hip bone because her hip was like butter from the cancer, they said. The minister was unaware of Lisa's condition, so the minister you know, said, hey, well, if you're walking, run. And so she ran, and then she came up on the stage and ran back and forth. She walked out of that meeting with her parents, uh, who took her to the doctor, who ran every possible test and consulted with other physicians because, well, they were confused. Wouldn't you be? Not only was the cancer gone, the bone damage the cancer caused was gone. Bones being restored like this is naturally impossible. Barbara Comiskey Snyder was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis as a teenager. From the age of 15 to 31, 75% of her life was spent in the hospital. Her doctor described her condition as one of the most hopelessly ill patients he ever saw. One diaphragm was completely paralyzed, so that lung wouldn't work. The other one was operating at 50%. She had a trach in her neck for oxygen and could only speak in short sentences as she became easily breathless. Her abdomen was swollen grotesquely because the muscles around the intestines didn't work anymore, nor would her bladder function. She hadn't been able to walk for seven years. She was blind except for two little pin dots that she could kind of see out of through her eyes. She needed 24-7 nursing care. Barbara was on a machine to help her breathe and a feeding tube to help her eat. She was not able to stand. Finally, the doctor sent her home assuming she was in her final week of her life. Through all of this, Barbara stayed connected to God. He was her reason to live, and her church continued to pray and show up and visit her. A couple of her friends came to visit, and Barbara heard this booming authoritative voice over her left shoulder saying, My child, get up and walk. Now, because she had a breathing tube, she could only speak when someone plugged the hole in her neck. So whenever she wanted to talk, she kind of agitated a little bit, and they would plug the hole, and she'd get a couple words out before she was breathless. And she told her friends, God just told me to get up and walk. And their friends went, what? And she got them to plug the hole again, and Barbara said, go get my family. And normally it would take two people, two minutes or more, to get her out of bed. 
Instead, Barbara jumped out of the bed toward the voice that she had heard, landed on the ground. Her feet had been so clamped up, but now all of a sudden they were flat. She looked down. She saw her hands, which had all been clenched up because of no longer use, and they were open, and she could see her hands and feet. She was no longer blind. She started freeing herself from all the apparatus she was she was attached to trachea tube out, oxygen tank, calf bags. By the time her friends returned to the room, they were screaming and jumping, and her mom came running behind and froze at what she saw. Not only was Barbara healed from her condition beyond all natural explanation, but her muscles also were, that had been atrophied were, were strong. And she went outside that day and ran around the yard in the sun that she had not been able to see and be out in for years. The next day, she visited her doctor, and he couldn't believe it. He tells the interviewer, saying, I I thought I was seeing an apparition. Here's my patient, who is not expected to live another week, standing before me, totally cured. For the last 40 years, Barbara has lived her life with no recurrence of MS. Miracles are not always physical healings. We've got lots of stories, but only time for a couple today. Emmanuel Etopson, who was a PhD from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, recalled how his father, who was a Nigerian church planter, had moved to a new village to start a new church. He was working on a new roof on their new home, and it was going to take another four days. And the residents of the village, who were overall mocking him, and just saying, what are you doing? You're, you're stupid doing what you're doing. This, it's rainy season. Everything is going to be wrecked before you ever get this roof done. And they'd been mocking him all day, and he finally lost his temper. And he said, it's not going to rain one drop until this roof is done. And they all laughed and walked away. Afterward, he says his dad fell on his face going, God, what have I done? It didn't rain for four days in that village. It rained all around it, while all the residents could see it raining all around it, but it did not rain in that village for four days. And all but one person in that village became a Christian as a result. Craig Keener says it this way. He said, to this day, the residents recount this incident as what precipitated the village's conversion. Pun intended. Would you welcome now for a a more personal story from one of our very own, Joe and Kathy DePlacido, as they come. We had a pleasure of having lunch with them this last week and and, uh, heard a number of stories of their interactions. They told one story that I I, I wanted them to be able to tell you today. Come on over. So the first service, Joe shared his perception. And so in this service, I'm going to share mine. That means more words, sorry. That's okay. It's a girl thing. Um, So Joe and I were saved um, in 1985, and we were new Christians, very excited. Um, Came from a small church, and we wanted to do something. And so we asked if we could help in any way. And the pastor said, yes, absolutely, you can help by cleaning the church. So we were ecstatic, got church keys, and we would go in and clean the church every Sunday night. So this one particular Sunday, um, my husband was going to travel. He was going to leave right after church and catch a flight to go to Alaska for a business meeting. So we went to church, uh, got home, and he put the key in the lock, and it wouldn't work. 
And he looked down and he realized that he had taken the wrong set of keys. Now the key to that apartment was actually in the apartment. And you know that look of panic in your husband's eyes? Well, yeah, I saw that panic. So he immediately started thinking, okay, how can we get in? Because my flight's gonna leave and I've got to go and I don't have any clothes. So he ran out to a truck and got a fishing pole and tried to slip it through the mail slot and unlock the lock, I don't know, but he, that's what he tried. He thought about boosting our son up into the second story window. My son was four and that, wasn't, that didn't go over well with me. He even contemplated knocking the door down and I was like, Ain't no way you're going to leave me with a busted door and you're going off to Alaska. And I could see that, the anxiousness in him beginning to rise and, and he was pacing, how are we going to get in? I've got to go. I can't miss this flight. And I said, well, let's pray. So in the hallway, we all grabbed hands and we prayed. And we just asked God basically to, to move on our behalf, to somehow open the door because we didn't know what else to do. Unbeknownst to me, as soon as I got done praying, Joe grabbed the keys and inserted the key that he had tried before into the lock and turned it, and the door opened. Y'all, I had a shouting fit. I went running down the hallway, praising God. I couldn't believe what I had just seen because I knew that he had tried every key, but this time it opened the door. And it was a church key, right? It was. It wasn't even your home it key. It was the church key because the house key was in the house. So we had a fit. We were laughing. We were amazed at what God had just done. Joe went, got his luggage, took off for Alaska. We really didn't have time to process the fullness of what God had just done. Went to church that evening, and I had to share, right? I had to share what God had done for us. During that service, our four-year-old son gave his heart to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Later on that evening, when we got home and Joe called, and we kind of were going over everything that had happened, and he had made his flight, and everything was good, and, and I'd shared with him that, that Joshua had given his heart to the Lord during that service. There was a pause in our conversation, and Joe said, i got to ask you, did you try the key? And I said, yep. He said, did it work? And I said, nope. <laughs> so God cares and is intimately involved in the very, very smallest things in our life. He wants to show up and show up big for us. So don't discount the small things. Awesome. Thank you very much. In the first service that reminded me of a story from college, my college roommate walked onto a floor one day and it got off the elevator and it was panic all over the floor. A bunch of the guys hollered at him, the guy in the room is committing suicide right now. He just told us he was going to hang himself and his door's locked and we can't get in. And they'd been trying, they'd been trying to bash the door down. These are all college kids, but it was one of those metal steel frames and they couldn't get the door open. And my friend who was just, he was just one of these faith guys. It's just, he never, uh, situations never rocked him. He just said, let's pause. Let's pray. They prayed. He touched the handle. It opened. He went in. They got the guy down. He lived. God still shows up in miracles. So how do we walk this out? 
Well, we pray. It's pretty simple. We pray. We ask God for miracles. We pray for healing physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. We just keep praying. We pray for miracles of provision, remembering to not be discouraged because even in the early church, it wasn't 100% success rate. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, used to say, pray, he used to say this, pray and pray for 600 sick people before you give up because that's how long it took him to see his first healing and then he saw hundreds and hundreds after that. That's what he did. He finally saw it because faith risks to see wonder and it navigates the disappointments. We want a faith that is resilient enough that we keep praying, we keep leaning in instead of leaning away. We live leaning in because God is worth every step we take in this journey. Let's stand. We got a song. Let's give our hearts and worship to God. The Bible tells us that when we praise Him, His presence comes. His presence is always with it. What that means is when we praise Him, His presence comes more tangibly. And so let's just give our hearts to Him right now and ask for Him to come. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.